we don't know what the ultimate lesson is, but we have to stay in the fight and keep pushing and push to solve that puzzle. Hello, and welcome to the Mental Sweet Spot podcast, where we share tips, stories, and strategies for coaching the mental game of softball. I'm Melanie Rushing, and I'll be joined shortly by Alicia Smith for another episode. Today's guest is a practicing sport performance psychologist who works with athletes from the PGA, LPGA, NFL, NBA, MMA, and serves as a sport performance psychologist for the University of Alabama Athletic Department. He's the author of The Mindside Manifesto, The Urgency to Create a Competitive Mindset, as well as The Game Plan Workbook, which he developed in order to help athletes, coaches, and leaders compete to the best of their ability. Stuck in Suckville will be his next book, so keep an eye out for its release. Additionally, he hosts the Secrets to Winning podcast and has published several academic journal articles, presented numerous scientific presentations, as well as provided insight and authored articles for trade magazines such as Golf Magazine, Golf World, Golf Week, and ESPNW, among others. He's also made several appearances on the Golf Channel's Morning Drive and the Golf Fix. Today, we discuss his journey as a pitcher, from JV as a junior to D1 national champion, when he realized he was pitching scared and how he came back with a new attitude, how people struggle with belief, doubts, and impatience, determining if the sacrifices we must make to reach our goals are worth it, and being honest about whether you're giving 100%. We are so excited for today's guest. Please welcome sports psychologist and founder of The Mindside, Dr. Brett McCabe. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. Pumped to be on. Let's do this. All right. Uh, thanks again, Dr. McCabe. And you did say it was okay to call you Brett, but Absolutely. I will say Dr. 100%. McCabe. Yes. So um, we'll jump right in. And could you please give us, uh, you know, your story and your background and what drew you and inspired you to pursue the degree that you have currently and why you do what you do? Yeah. Well, you know, I started on the diamond and I was a baseball player at LSU and we were, it was a pretty good time. It was a good era uh, to be a part of the LSU baseball program. And I, um, yeah, I grew up as a baseball player. My dad was a college baseball player uh, before he was in the military. And, and so I grew up, you know, when you travel around in the military, um, you know, sports is a thing that you can always connect within the community. So I'd always play baseball and, and wasn't a big fan of football. I enjoy watching it, but to me, it didn't make a lot of sense. You practice all week that if you're good, you get to play half of the game. Um, and so I wanted to play all the time and, and baseball allowed that. And I gravitated towards the mound and was a pitcher. Um, and, you know, really never thought I was going to be, I mean, I wanted to play in college. I didn't think college was going to be really going to be available to me because of, um, I just wasn't, I guess, good enough. I thought I could have been, but my high school career didn't go according to plan. I actually played two years of junior varsity, um, not as a freshman and a sophomore, but as a sophomore and a junior. Um, you know, in today's world, kids are getting recruited as freshmen in high school and freshmen in high school, junior in high school, I was unknown. Um, and, I started the high school season as the third starter on our team. Uh, one of our older players, or in my senior year, one of my colleagues got sick and had to miss the year. And the other guy was a superstar and was going to Mississippi State and, um, and just had a lot more cachet than I did. And, and so I, um, you know, I, I did my best. And, and next thing I know in April of that my senior year, I get an opportunity to go play at LSU. And and it was not as an athletic scholarship by any means. It was an academic scholarship that had a preferred walk-on role at LSU. But I was fortunate enough to, to be smart enough at the time to look at it and not think I needed athletic money. I just needed an opportunity. And so I went from kind of an unknown to being six foot five, 220 pounds, big, strong kid, 
um, with a lot of potential. And coach sat me down with my dad before we ever went and said, look, you're not good enough to play for me right now. But if you come in and do the work and you, and you put in the patience, I think in a couple of years, three, three years, you'll probably be good enough. And I think in today's world, most people would have bailed on that idea, but I wanted to play at LSU. And it wasn't like I had other offers either. Um, it was the only offer I had. And so I took it. And I went to LSU and redshirted my freshman year, which he told me I was going to. But I soaked up everything I could by, I think we had five or six major league pitchers on that pitching staff. And we won the national title. And I you know, traveled with the team. I was a part of the team. I was essentially our, I was the opposing team starting pitcher before big games in the World Series. And I, uh, I did what it took. And I, was, I learned everything I could from the people around me. And, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity. And I actually went to the White House my freshman year after we won it. Met Joe, uh, Joe Williams and, or Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams, as long as, as well as Presidents H.W. Bush. Um, and, you know, I think it's, um, it was a great learning for me, but I came back the next year and thought, hey, I've got this. Well, I didn't. I uh, wasn't good enough and I got mono, missed six weeks of the season due to mono. And it wasn't going to play. I mean, I was only pitching two or three innings total that season anyways. Um, and after the off season, um, I had to stay in school there to finish my, my core requirements because I had fallen behind and I was falling out of class um, because of the mono. And I spent the summer getting better. And all of a sudden, this weird thing happened called um, confidence hit. I was playing for like a, a, I call it a beer league baseball, but it was a bunch of former players who were going around playing uh, former LSU players that were going around playing in the summer, just playing ragtag baseball games. And my catcher was my former pitching teammate. <laughs> he just wanted to catch. And so he caught and we had a blast, but I got confident. And so I returned to the fall that year in great shape, playing great, throwing really hard, had a lot of confidence and ended up breaking the fall camp that year as a third starter. Um, the, the, the beauty of it was I really started finding who I was as a player. The problem was, uh, I had some inflammation and some problem in my shoulder at the end of the camp. And so what I found was me being the third starter on the team as a preseason number one, um, team, I went into a lot of insecurity and a lot of uncertainty about the future. Didn't recover very well and came back for the fall camp and was, or spring camp and was terrible. My shoulder hurt really bad, um, and I tried to work through it versus take the time off because I was afraid to lose my responsibilities and struggled. And we ended up winning the national title again that year. I only threw like 10 innings. Um, and every time I pitched, I had a different throwing motion. Uh, I lost the confidence and the timing in my mechanics. And every time I pitched, everyone told me what I was doing wrong, except for my head coach, who um, really didn't involve himself, um, probably – Probably would have been great if he had, but his style was to let you figure it out. Um, and so I go play summer ball that year, pitch fine, come back, and it just got even worse. And I spent that entire fall trying to recreate the fall I had the year before and found myself on a 14-man pitching roster, number probably 15. And as the season approached, I was about done, and I was going to just pursue a degree to finish up my degree and go to law school thought this is terrible. I thought I had it, lost it, and uh, ended up going to see a guy to help me. And he helped clear some blocks I had and some fears and trying to recreate some things. And I found a little something in the bullpen and coach saw it and was like, oh, I like that. And said, I want to see you throw in a couple early games, which was kind of a, a big stretch. I'm not sure why he saw that in me, but I pitched well. 
And I'd lost a lot of velocity, but I found a slider. And the slider allowed me to compete at the SEC level because it was, it was a superpower pitch. And, um, you know, I, I lost so much velocity. I was throwing probably 84 miles an hour in the SEC as a right-handed pitcher. But I could throw my slider at 82, and it had a lot of break. So it looked identical coming out of my hand as my fastball. It just went the opposite way. So it allowed me to play. And so um, I pitched early, and, and, but I always struggled with confidence. I struggled with being able to be the man on the mound. And whether we're male or female, what I mean by that is being that dominant, confident force that when you step up in the heat of the moment, you believe that you can compete. I didn't have that. I wanted evidence. And he knew that. And thankfully, he knew that. And early in a game against TCU, Nolan Ryan, my all-time favorite pitcher, was sitting in the opposing team dugout. And uh, we were pitching against his son. And I came in relief of a really early game. Um, and bases loaded, nobody out. And I got out of the inning with no runs. And I came off, and I was so excited. And, you know, deep down, I always struggled with the next inning after a big moment because I would fall behind early and kind of be sloppy. Coach hated that. And he, he grabbed me as I was running off the field. And he said, look, you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, you know, the good news. So it was the best inning I've ever seen you pitch. The bad news is if you walk this next hitter, I'm, I'm taking you out of the ball game. And I did. I walked him on four pitches, and he did. And so the next day, thankfully, my dad grabbed me after the game and said, hey, what happened? And I told him, he said, well, don't walk the batter. I mean, come on. He, he didn't blame coach. He didn't anything. And I'm very thankful to, that, to this day uh, about my dad. Um, the next day, I wasn't going to pitch. You know, we knew early in the season when we were pitching and not pitching, and I wasn't on the schedule. And our starting pitcher was in a lot of trouble, and I was walking in from a clinic um, that the pitchers that I had thrown the day before had gone to. And the next thing I know, I'm in the bullpen, and I'm in the game, and I get out of another massive jam, and I run off the field, and coach, you know, gives me the exact same scenario. And I did the exact same thing, but instead I actually got a, a called a 3-0 pitch called as a strike, um, luckily. And the next batter hit a double off the wall and coach took me out of the ball game. And it made me go back and look at why I was pitching so scared because deep down, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe I was actually good enough to be out there. And I went back and worked with the guy that I was working with. And he did a lot of work to instill in me what it took to believe in myself in the heat of the moment. And I came back with a whole new attitude. And the attitude was I was going to strike out everybody I faced. It didn't matter how good or bad I was. I could still beat them. And, um, and, and I ended up having a tremendous amount of success, pitched in the World Series and uh, led our team in a lot of statistical categories and, and had a lot of fun and pitched my next year. But after that, I decided the mind was that important. And so I switched my major to psychology. I had a semester left to graduate in business at the time. Uh, I changed my major to psychology, added another year of, of what I needed. And then I busted my butt to get in grad school and I got in grad school and then I knew I wanted to come back and work with athletes, but I didn't feel like being a sports psychologist was what I wanted. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist that worked with athletes, um, which meant that I understood the entire spectrum of human behavior, uh, people at the top or people that are struggling. And so I spent really 15 years working on that. And then um, I had worked in the pharmaceutical industry for eight years, the last eight years of that 15 year cycle. And started having a lot of success work, helping people out around the area on their golf games. And that and also included major champions and people at the highest level. And then I thought it was time to open up the mind side. Um, but if it wasn't for that conversation I had with my coach in March of 1994, I probably wouldn't be doing this. There you go. That's my story. It's such a good story. And anyone who's listened to the podcast has heard bits of it before. But it's so cool to hear the full thing because 
it really is a struggle becoming a top performer <laughs> and you went through a life's lot a of ups and downs, right? Look, life's I mean, a struggle. I mean, exactly. you know, people don't understand. I, I, I think I always tell my athletes, look, there's four things you got to understand. Life's not fair. Okay. There are people who are going to do things, say things and, and get things that's not fair to you, but you just got to persevere and push through. Okay. You have a choice every day to how to respond to those challenges that are in front of you. And it doesn't mean that they're fair. It just means that you have a choice to respond. Um, lazy people or, uh, hard workers don't always win. Okay. People always say, I work so hard. I don't understand. It doesn't, it's hard works an investment. It's not a guarantee. Um, coaches do play favorites. All right. They're people they can trust and however they form that trust is up to that coach. And then finally, lazy people don't lose always, you know, sometimes lazy people succeed and, and I could probably add a fifth one. Life is a struggle and the struggle is, is it's never easy. And you've got to stay in the fight instead of hoping for greener pastures out there. Brett, with that said, you, you've obviously worked with a lot of different athletes and, and as you, from your perspective, what do you feel like your athletes have struggled with the most? Uh, probably three major things. All right belief. Life is such a struggle that we lose belief in who we are. All right. And the best athletes in the world believe in who they are. Now, it doesn't mean that they always have it. And I think that's important for people to understand because the second one is people struggle with their doubts. So the greatest, the best, there are periods where their belief is low and their doubts are high and they got to learn to flip that. Um, the best know how to do that. They know how to get back in that frame of mind. Um, but people struggle with belief and we got to feed that champ that's inside of us. That chump, that's what I wrote about in the game plan, is this chump is always on our shoulder telling us we're not good enough, we're not going to make it. It's that negative voice, it's that opponent that's in our, our head trying to win the battle. But we've got to feed our champ. And so we got to do that by what we believe in ourselves. we got to find the patterns of what we do. And, and like I said, life is so hard. Competition's even harder. But if you don't believe in something, Okay, you'll never succeed because you'll always be searching for the next validation that you're good enough. That's where we get in trouble is when we don't believe we search for validation, we search for validation, we never get it. So we're constantly being reminded that well, we're failing short. And that's where I'm well, writing the book Stuck in Suckville. The second one is doubts. Doubts are always there. As the intensity of the moment gets closer, so do doubts get higher. Um, doubts don't get easier under the heat of the moment. They get much, much more powerful and much more frequent. So you got to learn to mute out the noise of doubts and then recenter yourself back on the, the, the beliefs. And then I think the final thing is that we, people get impatient. Um, I get impatient on a daily basis and I wish that I had patience to see things play out, but um, I get very impatient and the impatience and the challenge there is the fact that, you know, we, we want to see results because we want to see validation. We want to see results because the work, the effort needs to produce the fruit, but bigger than that. And I think the bigger challenge is we, we get impatient because we doubt the outcome will ever reach what we need it to be. If I said there was a million dollars buried outside of your house, you would be relentless until you found it, but you'd have a guarantee that I buried it. I can tell you to go search for a million dollars, but if I say it may or may not be there, you'll quit because you'll eventually go, I don't think it's there. Okay. And then if somebody found it, you'd be so upset that somebody found it because you quit. But how do you keep going when you don't know? And that's what we have to have in performance. How do we keep going? Like I look back at my career. I mean, I am such a low probability chance of success in the college ranks. 
to play at the number one baseball program in the country and the legacy program. And I'm playing with major leaguers. And here I am as a scrub that got it done. Now, fortunately, I played, with, I played for a coach that didn't believe in your scholarship status as a determinant for your playing time. He believed in preferred walk-ons all the time. In fact, two of them started at the second base and shortstop in the Olympics um, he, that, he, that he recruited and developed. So I think the patience is there's an uncertainty there. And how did I continue to push on? My idea was the fact if I couldn't play at LSU, I didn't want to play anywhere. And it didn't mean that other places weren't good enough for me. It was the fact that that fall I had a taste of what it took. And if I hadn't had that fall, I probably would have bailed long before. A lot of people bail because it's not fast enough. And deep down, they, they, don't, they don't have the certainty that it, the effort is going to work. And I think the biggest challenge of today's generation is, is giving everything you have without a certain outcome. Because if you give everything you have and you don't reach the outcome, then it says more, potentially says more about yourself from a negative perspective, that you failed to perform at the best and therefore you do something wrong. You failed. You're not good enough. Versus most athletes in today's world, they actually hold back a little bit. They don't empty the tank. They don't give their all. Because what happens is by not giving your all and holding a little bit back, when you fail, you can say, see, you know what? See, if I would just give a little bit more, I would have been successful. And that's the challenge. This is really cool. And it's really getting my brain going. I want to go back to something you said when you were talking about belief and the patterns that people have that kind of help them hold on to that belief. Because I, I tell people all the time, even ourselves who practice this and preach it all the time, we still have these same exact doubts. So how do we stay patient when we're going through the same thing over and over again like you said without any guarantee what are some tips you give your athletes or even focus on yourself to help stay patient you know progress and, and success is not an all or nothing task okay when we're fo focusing on it as winning and losing we're missing the battle and i'm not saying that failure is cool i'm not like we all fail and people, you know, forever say failure doesn't define you. And I'm like, yeah, it does. Cause they don't build statues for people who come in second. Okay. Um, but failure, failure is a reminder that we have to do better on our lessons. And if it's worth fighting for, then take the learnings that you get in those failures and take those challenges and learn from them so that you create more wisdom and experience. So the next time you're in that scenario, you have a better understanding of how to persevere and win. The challenge is that people bail, you know, people bail for all kinds of reasons. It's not worth the sacrifice. As we were saying before, you know, I've got Kat Osterman coming on an upcoming podcast and here she is returning to the Olympic team at not a traditional age. She could have, she could have lost all of, you know, people could have said, Oh, look at her, you know, whatever. She had a lot more to risk at this point than she did to gain. But it was that important to her to sacrifice what she did in order to get there. And I, I think we have to look at it as how important is it? How important is the sacrifices we're going to make to reach the goals that we want to achieve? And if the sacrifice isn't worth it, then we're not going to follow through. We're going to bail. And that's okay. That's okay. Not everybody is built to have the success and the definitions of where we want to go. 
So you have to know yourself. Is it worth it? Don't, don't, don't play a charade with me. Either you want it or you don't. If you don't, that's completely fine. Then let me help you find something that you're, that you love to do. Let's put our energy on it. Some players don't want to be the number one pitcher on the squad. Some people like to be the fourth pitcher. They like all the benefits of being on the team, but they don't want the pressure. And that's okay. But then don't be unhappy if you're not getting to pitch. And, but if you choose, you want to be the number one pitcher. Okay, success and failure. Well, what happens if you have a Monica Abbott or a Cat Osterman or Alexis Osorio who shows up and is now the number one pitcher because they recruited them in and they ended up figuring something out and they became superb, right? Now all of a sudden you're like, oh my. Well, I got to be the best in the role that I'm in. I got to win the battle I'm in today, not the battle down the road. Because I'm no good if I try to win the battle down the road today. I got to win the battle that's in front of me. I had, a, I had a golf client who's struggled with where he is this year because he should be on the PGA Tour. And he just has just missed a couple times. And he's like, I've got to be really good where I'm at, not where I think I should be. I think I should be on the PGA Tour, but I'm not. So I got it's really hard right now because his motivation is not as high as if he was on the PGA Tour. There's a frustration there. So he's a little quicker on the emotions, but that means he's not fighting the battle he's in today. That's so true. Like I think we get so distracted almost by our aspirations and goals that we forget about the journey that will take us there. Yep. Absolutely true. I want to ask yeah, go ahead. a little more about the, uh, the worth piece. So how do you help players like this golfer, for example, figure out, what exactly is worth this sacrifice so they can connect with that and get through the crappy feeling that they're in right now? Well, here, here's the deal. The crappy feelings are going to be there regardless. Okay. And, and if you question that, think about the last time you won a big game, how long did that last? It doesn't last very long. Okay. So crappy feelings motivate us, but reality says that, when you're where you are, you use those crappy feelings to motivate you. The sacrifice is how good are your reps? The sacrifice is, is, are you willing to do the things when other people go home? The sacrifice is, are you willing to be focused and not feel like you need to join the team game of chatting and talking bad about the coach, but you need to go in there and get your reps. Um, the team, you know, the sacrifice is sometimes it's like, look, I don't need to go to that party on a Friday night, not because it's a bad party to go to, but it means that maybe I'm, I'm sacrificing my rest at the same time too. It's like, you don't have to be a recluse to be successful. So you have to find what the battle is for you. And I always want players to understand like, what are you willing to make a sacrifice? A lot of times players get married to get in relationships and those relationships have other demands. Like, Hey, what time are you going to dinner tonight? Well, you're getting, you're all of a sudden you don't want to go to the gym, but now you're in a really good flow and you're getting in a great workout. You look down, you got to be at dinner in 25 minutes. Okay. You can balance all that, but that comes at a sacrifice, right? And the sacrifice may be, hey, maybe wake up 30 minutes earlier. Um, you know, if you really want it that bad, you'll make those sacrifices. Didn't say it's easy. And, and, and the struggle is there every day. You know, I, I asked a, a group of um, professionals the other night. I said, every one of you love what you do. Absolutely. Is it work? Well, yeah, it's work. All right. Because, you know, the people always say, if you know, you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm like, I work on my game every day. 
I work on my stuff every single day. I work to train to get better every single day. That's work. Uh, you know, I started my day very, very early this morning. I've got a couple hours more of work to do at my desk before I leave tonight. It'll probably be a 17 hour day in the office. That's one of my four 17 hour days in the office this week. But I was off yesterday for Mardi Gras. But to me, it's the sacrifice is worth it. Now, my family allows me to do that. My wife's a part of the business. My daughter, who's home, my other one's in college, they get it, they understand it. They, they're, they appreciate and understand, but I do, I, I do as much as I can to be it. I will not miss their events. So I will sacrifice other times and they know that. And those are the sacrifices I choose to make. The sacrifice that gets me is honestly, I don't have the energy to go exercise and work out and people go, oh, you should find the time. Come spend a day with me and tell me where I would. Um, you know, since I've been in the office today, I've gone, not, I haven't had a break and I love what I do, but it's work and it's work to come in the same when I'm meeting with clients or I'm meeting with teams is to bring the same energy to them as if it's the first client I have in my first day on the job because they're investing in me. And it's the same thing with coaches. You know, I tell coaches all the time, look, if you ask a hundred percent of your players, are they getting a hundred percent of you? Because if they're not, then you're being a hypocrite. You're asking them to give 100% of themselves to you. Coach, oh, I give 100% of myself. Are you? Are you calling their parents at night and having a conversation with them? Are you meeting with your players or are you avoiding those conversations? Are you setting up a practice plan or are you quickly writing it out before you get out to practice that day? Because that's not 100%. That's winging it. Those are the sacrifices we have to make. Players, are you... Are you actually in the gym getting your work done? Or are you putting in the efforts and just doing what you can to get through the reps? Because if you're trying to survive workouts versus trying to thrive in workouts, you're not giving 100%. Those are the sacrifices we have to make. That reminds me a lot of one of the most challenging times as a coach was when I had a core, core group of girls who went to the state semifinals three years in a row and lost each time. Mm. So, you know, the first time they were young, you know, so then we had to kind of work that second year. You have to ha get them right to make those sacrifices and put in the hard work, knowing there isn't any guarantee. Um, and after they lost the second time, it's, it's kind of, you start questioning things, right. As a coach and the players start questioning things and then they come back the third year and they're ready to go. And you've got to convince them to be, you have to motivate them and convince them to make those sacrifices because those are the goals they have chosen, but to put in that hard work every single day, uh, without those guarantees, I think is one of the most challenging things we, we have as coaches. Absolutely. And coaches also though, you know, you put so much blood, sweat and tears into what you do and you want your kids to perform to the best of their abilities and you want them to have their successes to taste it. And when you have those personal relationships with players, you, you want them to experience the adulation of what their efforts, because you want them to understand that future in life, hard work will lead to higher chances of success. But Life and sport are not under our control. Mm -hmm. You know, I go off topic here for a minute, but it's like when people, I had somebody who, um, I'm not trying to go off topic. I want to, I want to scope this. A couple of years ago when you know, working for Alabama football, they lost the national title. They lost it this year. Same team. And I get a call from their, one of their, the inspirational leaders of the other team. And he's like, I said, Hey, congratulations. Yeah. God is so good to give us, you know, God saw the one. And I thought I sat there for, I'm a religious guy. Okay. I'm very spiritual, but I'm thinking, but what about my guys? 
right? What about my guys? Wasn't good to them. And the reason why I said that, um, um, that I say that is in everything we do, spiritual, religion, personal psychology, it's give everything you got, regroup, relearn, let's go again. Maybe my guy's lesson was not winning. Maybe my guy's lesson was coming back from that loss. Maybe your kid's lesson was learning. We want them to win, but maybe their lesson in a higher level, whatever we want to call it, universe. And I always leave that to um, you know, us in the, the scenario is that experience, that experience is the lesson that we have to learn. So when we repeat it, we're not learning the lesson. It doesn't mean we're dumb. It doesn't mean we're stupid. It doesn't mean we're slow. It just means that there's a lesson in there we have to learn. We were very fortunate to win, to win national titles. But I look in the baseball world. Mike Martin is a brilliant Hall of Fame coach, winning his coach in the all-time in the college baseball, never won, never won a national championship. Why? I don't know. I don't know why. I just know he hasn't. And it was Coach Burtman that much better of a coach? I know I never played for Coach Martin, so I can't compare him. I know my coach was phenomenal, but I also know we had some very nice breaks that happened to us along the way. Absolutely. I think that was the hardest speech I've ever had to give at a postseason, you know, get together. The second uh, state champ, or excuse me, the second semifinal that we lost, we had, we were uh, playing through rain. Yeah. Rain, rain that any other normal softball game has never played through. We don't play this sport, as you know, in, in downpours. And we were stuck in that moment, um, pouring rain in my team, uh, didn't handle the situation well because I didn't handle the situation well, but trying to stand up and tell these kids, these, this is a life lesson. Just like you said, life isn't fair. You have zero explanation as a coach, right? Why yeah. they were forced to do that. And it's, it's heartbreaking for them because you said it perfectly. I wanted so desperately for them to be able to experience what it felt like for hard work to pay off for every, yeah. all those blood, sweat and tears. And it's heartbreaking when that doesn't happen, but that's, that's hard to explain, you know, to high school kids when things like that happen. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, it, it's, it, it's, look, I, I look at today's society, our kids, you know, they, they, um, the, when you look at like the ACT and the SAT to get into college, right? It's so competitive and I'm 46 and I don't know if I could get, I don't know if I could compete in today's world. Now, I know that what we do um, is that we had to, you know, we have to look at what are we actually teaching? We're teaching people to pass tests, not learn material. Most kids today would rather learn the skills. This is get it done. You know, I think it's important that, you know, we understand that throughout the learnings, it's going to be an experience um, that we have to go through and we don't know what the ultimate lesson is but we have to stay in the fight and keep pushing and push to solve that puzzle. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think so many people talk about the process, but they don't really commit to it. <laughs> they don't really know what it takes. So I think that's why we love your podcast is like straightforward style. Like don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be the perfect scenario and the outcome every, that you want every time, but commit to it because you know that something worthwhile is at the end of the journey. Yeah. You know, think about this too, though, right? If there were guarantees of everything we did, would we work as hard? No. In right. fact, 
so when we look at schedules of reinforcement, which is the psychological terminology when it comes down to learning, um, operant conditioning, Skinner-based modeling, big words, but what it means is rewards and punishments, okay? Mm -hmm. um, intermittent schedules are the best, which means sometimes I press the lever and I get it. Sometimes I press the lever and I don't. That's the most addictive. It's called gambling, okay? Um, if you won every time you pulled the trigger in blackjack or in, um, yeah, in blackjack, you'll eventually get bored of it because, yeah, you say, oh, I'd love the money. Yeah, you, the money would be good. Okay, that's a nice secondary benefit. The reality is it doesn't really work like that. The reality is that we get bored very quickly. And we get bored because the excitement, what, what most athletes miss when they leave the game is not the victories. They miss the pit in their stomach. They miss the bus rides. They miss the feeling of being absolutely vulnerable at the heat of the moment time frame. That can I, will I, have I. Not absolutely I did, that was easy. Because if that was the case, we'd just go back and beat up on small town schools or people who don't have any skills and put a team together just so we can win. I mean, the Harlem Globetrotters had to be an acrobatic group to make it interesting, right? Yeah. People don't like perennial undefeateds. No, they don't. No. I, I as a coach, personally absolutely love and relish in the underdog role. Of course. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. But I, as a coach, I think you get that same, that same feeling. Like what you just said, like if and when, well, I will eventually step away from coaching. I've been doing it for 22 years now, but when I eventually do, I will miss exactly what you just said. Just same as a coach, right? Yeah. You miss that. How is it going to go? What the uncertainty, the uncertainty, but uncertainty makes us great. That's where anxiety comes from. Okay. All anxiety is, is anxiety is us trying to meet the demands of the upcoming moment. And since we don't know the body has to increase arousal to increase arousal, to meet that demand. So, but if we cognitively see it as a stressor and then identify why it's stressful, it becomes anxiety. Instead, if we take that experience and emotion, and go, I love this. And I feel uncomfortable, but man, I love it. I feed off of this. Now all of a sudden it's adrenaline. And now we're more ready. Instead of protecting ourselves against failure, we're locking into the challenge. So Brett, what would you say coaches could do to help kind of cultivate that type of culture that you're talking about? Compete daily and make everything you can. There's times where you need to educate and you need to build confidence and you can build confidence through competition. You can create scenarios where certain people perform well and they need that confidence. doesn't mean you're jobbing the outcome, but you're sometimes you're making scenarios work for them. There's other times you want to challenge their resiliency. So that same player, you may have to put them through a lot of failure, but you're creating competition. And what you want to do is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we all grew up playing the game in our backyard. We all grew up playing the sport where, um, we learned in our backyard by figuring things out. We didn't have perfect scenarios, but what we did have was the resiliency to keep coming back. Now we have an entire generation of travel ball kids. There's nothing against them, but winning doesn't mean as much. Showcase is now the big word. Mm -hmm. So when are we ever going to, whenever we're going to lay it on the line for winning and losing, because if we've never had to win or lose and what it never really meant, all of a sudden we're going to turn a switch on and say, now, now it means a lot for the team to win. Now it means a lot for me to, move the runner over, but it's going to go 0 for 1 on the box score. Now it's going to mean a lot for me to take that extra base or to 
inch in a little bit because I've watched the hitter late three times in a row on swings. You know, what is it that it's going to require me to take that step in and be ready? All right. So I think the more that we can compete and allow our players to understand that competition never has a definitive outcome. We know we say it wins and loses, but you can go over three and win and still be a little unhappy, right? You don't give me the, don't give me the bogus mentality of, well, over three, but we win. I'm still happy. That player is still sitting in their truck at night or their car at night going, you got to be kidding me. I was over three. Okay. Nobody, nobody's comfortable with that. And I don't know many players that are three for three and lose that are happy with that either. So what you want to develop is that competitive mindset. When they step in the box, they step in the circle, they do whatever it takes that they are in that competitive environment. But we can't just assume that because we taught them how to field a ground ball, they're going to know how to field a ground ball when the competitive spirit is high. And so we have to train that. Thank you so much, Dr. McCabe. I appreciate all y'all's time and thanks for everything y'all doing. And that is it for today's episode. Be sure to follow Dr. McCabe on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Brett McCabe, D-R-B-H-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-A-B-E. If you want to implement some of the lessons Brett shared with us today, take today's coaching challenge, create more struggle. There's no getting around it. There will be struggle, especially for the things we really want. That's because the best goals are difficult to achieve. A part of the issue with not being able to deal with the struggle is we don't practice getting through it. Let's do some self-reflection. What percentage of your practices do you spend on drills intentionally designed for your players to fail? If it's less than 50%, you've got to level up the challenge. If you do incorporate competition and pressure, how often do your players leave that practice feeling good about what they learned? That's the tricky part of it. Even with the best of intentions, if you don't teach your players how to deal with that stress, you'll just end up crushing their spirit. This can be avoided by addressing the purpose of the challenge, telling them how they can do better, and giving them another opportunity to face the same challenge in the future. And that's our challenge to you for the week. Add more pressure to your practice and make sure your players take something away each time. They may not succeed for a while, but they'll be much more equipped come game time to deal with whatever is thrown at them. If you'd like some help coming up with challenging drills and new ways to level up the pressure, join us in our Dream Team programs. From our DIY to our full-service options, you'll have access to unique, high-pressure drills designed to build mental toughness in action. For more info on our membership levels and other services, reach out on social media or head to mentalsweetspot.com forward slash blueprint. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week with a brand new series where you get to come behind the scenes of our mastermind. You'll get full access to this powerful think tank each week as we strategize how to get the best out of our teams this season. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you soon.